Good evening. Take your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, and you might also grab Matthew 26. Let me just say that uh, I'm glad to see Brother Justin's going to have a, a two-Sunday evening session on creation, if you've never really got into the study of creation, um, you know, I'll give you by my own testimony, when I got saved, you know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, I was a saved evolutionist because I was taught evolution my whole life. I believed what my teachers taught me in school. And then I was led to the Lord and I started believing the Bible. But I didn't just get hit with a bolt of lightning and all truth just suddenly infused into me. I still had all the baggage that I grew up with up to that point, right? And um, I just say by by way of testimony, when it comes to the uh, apologetics, which is sometimes sounds like we're apologizing for something, but it means giving a defense of what we believe as Christians, uh, I think there's few things that are more powerful than having a good grasp of creation. One of the things that that I think is very powerful about it is that it, um, it's very empirical when you look at it. Uh, you say, well, it's all, there's always an element of faith. Of course, the Christian life is a life of faith, uh, but it's reasonable faith. Um, I always like to ask people when I, when I talk to them at all about the things of God or people that are doubters, skeptics, atheists, uh, I say, what's the alternative? You, you give me a better option. I'm not saying we just believe in God because he's the best of a few choices, but it, it was powerful in my life to see the truth of the scripture made alive in that way. And I would just encourage you, if you've never gone through it, I don't know what all Brother Justin has planned, but uh, I'm sure he'll do a good job with it because he always does. Um, I'd plan to be here those two Sunday evenings for sure Amen. and uh, get a dose of that. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 the Bible says the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I'd like to talk a little bit this evening about uh, the garden of God. And, you know, it's interesting that God in creation here, it says he, he planted a garden. You know, gardens are sort of a very unassuming kind of a thing, right? We don't, if you think of just sort of everyday things that we do in life. Maybe, uh, you know, some people enjoy gardening more than others, but it's almost hard to imagine that God, with all the important, you know, cosmic things that he's in charge of, that he thought to plant a garden. Now, if you're a gardener and you ever wanted to see a great garden, I mean, there are some pretty incredible ones in the world, but I don't think anything compares to the garden that God planted. And he put man in that garden, the Bible says, to, to till it and to keep it. Which, I mean, that sounds like work to me. (laughs) Now, we think of work as kind of a bad word in some respect, but work isn't part of the fall, right? God made the garden, and he made a man to take care of the garden that he had made. And that's before there's any sin or anything else. Uh, Work is not part of the fall. And God gave him that. Uh, He put the man in there, and, and the man walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But then over in chapter 3 and verse 1, we see that there's somebody else that was in the garden. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, a garden's where you grow stuff, where, where things come to life and grow. In fact, God put a tree in this garden called the tree of life, right, that was to perpetually provide for Adam and Eve. 
they would have lived, lived forever had they not sinned in that, in that regard. And if you go all the way down to the end of chapter 3, we find that eventually Adam and Eve are expelled from that garden, aren't they? And God sets cherubim there and a flaming sword, it says, to, to keep them from going back in because now they can't partake of that tree of life because they've sinned and now death is reigning inside them. And there's gardens uh, throughout the scripture. There's many that we read of, but a few that are of special note. And, and one is here, I think, in Genesis that, that God starts things out with a garden in his creation. Uh, in Isaiah 51, he talks about uh, the time when he's going to restore uh, the land, restore Israel. He says he's, he'll make their wilderness as Eden and their desert as the garden of the Lord. There's something about God and his, his interest in, in gardening. Uh, we do see over in Ezekiel 28 also, it talks about uh, Lucifer, that he was in Eden, the garden of God. Uh, now look over in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, there's another garden in scripture. Now this one's talked about in specific, it's the Garden of Gethsemane, with which most of us are probably familiar. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us various details about this event of Jesus and and the three praying in the garden. Uh, Interestingly, John doesn't really give us any details. He just mentions that it happened, but John is the one that tells us that Gethsemane is a garden, and it's in John uh, chapter 18. So you might have to use uh, a smidge of imagination tonight. I don't think that's a, a high crime. Certainly, imagination can go wild, and some people use their imaginations for evil, to be sure. But, you know, God didn't give us a picture book. He gave us a word book. And God created man's imagination. Man uses his imagination just like he uses pretty much everything that God gives for both good and bad. But I think God did it that way for a reason. And I don't know if any of you like to listen to old, like, old-time radio stories and stuff. There's something I like about them because they tell you the story rather than just show you a story like modern television and movies do that really don't leave much to the imagination. And if you ever had a favorite book, maybe, or a, a radio story, and they turn it into a movie, it almost always lets you down, or at least it does me. I'm like, that's not how it happened, right? It's like somebody's ruined it. Of course, our modern society has often made it difficult to keep our imaginations pure or to even allow us really to focus and have genuine imagination towards things. Uh, you know, Someone has said that the difference between Hollywood and Christianity is that people in Hollywood take what they know is false and then live as if it's true. Whereas Christians oftentimes take what they know is true, but then live like it's just some sort of a fairy tale. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. They've had the Passover meal and... uh, Peter has notably made his vows of loyalty to the Lord, even though Jesus says that uh, they're going to betray him. And it is interesting, uh, if you look there, let's back up a few verses. Um, In verse 35, Peter said unto him, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Now, we always associate that with Peter, because a lot of times, you know, Peter's the, the hothead or he's the leader. But what does it say after that? It says, likewise also said all the disciples. 
But that's, it's more of like kind of a footnote. We always only think about, well, Peter's the one that denied the Lord. But they all said they would do the same thing. Now, of course, the story goes on. We get details about Peter. But shortly after this, verse 36, then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, which means the olive press, by the way. He said unto his disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tear ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep. And he saith unto Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And it came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. (laughs) Vain repetition, right? I don't think so. Not if it's the Lord Jesus praying them. Praying the same words. There's a, there's a lesson there. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. First thing that at least comes to my mind reading this passage is who is suspiciously absent. And that's Satan. Now, obviously, God wrote this the way as appropriate and as he sees fit. But you think about Satan is a, is a limited being. He's, he's not infinite, though he is powerful. And he is certainly an opportunist. And this, what is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane right here is incredibly important. I always think of like, you know, the world as kind of this map and it's dark and there's lights going on where important events are happening. And if that were the case, this is where the light would be brightest on earth at this moment. And Satan has spent his life, at least as far as the record of Scripture, trying to thwart God, to ascend to God's throne, to corrupt the seed that we read about in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that would one day come and crush his head. He's been trying to poison the human race, to cast doubt on every word that God says. And he has worked tirelessly to affect those things. I I think he was probably there coaxing Abraham with Hagar. Why? Because he knew that's not where the seed was to come from. But God had other plans and he brought forth life from she that was dead, the Bible says. Beyond childbearing years anyway. I'm sure that he got a certain amount of joy or was licking his lips, so to speak, when Abraham was about to plunge a dagger into Isaac. Here we are. This ends it right here. It's all gone. That seed has been broken. It'll be cut off. Or maybe when the Hebrew newborns were being killed in Egypt. But God had Moses floating down the river, right? And a little ark of protection. God's got a plan that he's working behind the scenes, When Jehoram tried to murder all his brothers, but one of them survived. 
Maybe when David committed a sin that was worthy of death, and if he had been killed at that time, that would have ended that line, but God had sure mercy in store for David. And he brought David Solomon and allowed the line to continue. Maybe when Herod was slaughtering the newborns when he had heard about uh, the birth from the wise men. I think Satan was, was there. Absolutely. Now, don't get me wrong. Man doesn't need the devil to make him do it. We've got enough sin in our own selves. But we do wrestle against a world and what the Bible calls an adversary who walks about as a roaring lion. He's very much real. I'm sure he took great satisfaction when Jesus was 40 days fasting. He was at a, a weak point, no doubt. And Satan came to tempt him with every last bargain and trick of the trade that he could muster up to try to get Jesus Christ to bow at his feet, to give up his place as the rightful son of God. So I don't think there can be much doubt, though we may need to use a little imagination, that he's present somewhere in this occasion. Maybe this is just a a routine prayer meeting in the minds of some, but I don't think so. Luke 22, 53, when they come to take Jesus right after this, he says, when I was with you daily in the temple, you stretched forth no hand against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. There is something that is coming over the world, if you will, at this time when Jesus is in agony and in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The focus of the spiritual world, I believe, that night was at the garden. Very real and very powerful. The devil is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. And if the adversary is going to be one place this night, where do you think he's going to be? And we always think about, you know, well, the devil's doing this or the devil's doing that. I think oftentimes the devil's probably doing something else than what you think he's doing. He isn't everywhere doing everything. He's not God. Like I say, now he is powerful and he's not to be trifled with, but he's got his legions to do certain work. But this is when the the Lord Jesus Christ is in prayer to the Father about what is to come. And Satan, you can mark it down, knows what's going on, at least in a limited fashion. And I think this was the focus of his attack at this moment. In fact, go over to Mark chapter 14. That's where we read another uh, account of this same story. Mark 14 (laughs) adds an interesting note. Mark 14, verse 32, And they came to the place which is named Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And in verse 33, And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Now, I don't know what it takes to make the Son of God sore amazed, but that's what the Bible says. I've read a number of commentators, well-known commentators on this passage, try to explain how it means anything other than sore amazed and they wax eloquent about the characteristics of God and how he can be, can't be this and can't be that and all the rest. And that may have some place, but 
using a lot of breath or paper to try to explain why the Bible doesn't mean what it plainly says, I think is foolish. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ was sore amazed. The only other time that phrase is found in the Bible is when he comes to the disciples walking on the water and he calms the storm. And the Bible says that they were sore amazed. Sore amazed. Things are at a, a low point, at least by human standards here. And I think that Satan feels like he's probably got a bit of a chokehold on things at this moment. The psalmist said, weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. You know, sometimes you might be tempted to think, well, you know, if Satan knows that he's going to lose, then why does he even try? That's probably a good question. Let me ask you this. Do we know that when we're working against God that we're going to lose? When we're doing wrong, we know God's always going to be right. He's always going to win in the end, right? But we still do it. Uh, I mean, over there in uh, 2 Chronicles 13, uh, Jeroboam is leading the armies of Israel, and he thinks he's got Judah cut off. He's, He's leading an attack from the north, and he's sent half of his army around to the other side, and he's got them completely penned in. I mean, he's pretty sure he's got the victory, except for one thing. God steps in and gives Judah the victory that day, completely against what anyone could see, obviously, but God has other plans in mind. Over in Acts chapter 5, uh, Gamaliel is arguing with the Pharisees, and he, he tells them that you should give these, these uh, apostles some space, lest you be found to fight against God. Man fights against God all the time, even though he knows God's going to win. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to kick against the pricks, but we still kick, don't we? We still kick. So why does Satan keep fighting even though he knows he's a, a, a vanquished foe? Well, I don't know exactly what he knows. Presumably he could read the Bible, but I don't know. I'm not going to presume to know his mind. I just know that he's been fighting ever since the garden to corrupt anything God has, to try to cut off that seed, to corrupt the word of God in, God, in the minds of God's people. We see also that the Lord's servants here are, are slumbering. Now, it may seem obvious to you why they are. I don't, I don't know, but it seems odd to me he takes his, his three closest companions, his three closest disciples, and he says, watch with me one hour. I mean, don't you feel like if the Lord said, look, this is the most important thing in the world going on. I just really need you to pray with me for one hour. Would you say, sure, Lord. Now, we'd like to think no, right? I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I think that I would pray for one hour. I don't know. So it seems suspicious to me that his three closest friends are with him in his greatest hour of need, and they're asked to do one thing, and all three of them fall asleep. Three times in a row. Or they stay asleep after he returns three times. Have you ever wondered, like, why you try to pray at night, and it seems hard to stay alert, stay on point? Say, well, I could 
watch a movie till 2.30 in the morning, but if I try to pray for 15 minutes after midnight, my eyes are heavy, right? I mean, I just can't stay awake. Think that's just coincidence? You're just one of those people that doesn't have the praying gene? I don't think so. I think it's because the Bible says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I don't know that Satan cares that much if you're up watching movies, but I'm quite positive from the scripture he cares if you're on your knees talking to your heavenly father. That's spiritual battle, and battle is weary. And in this case, again, I, I can't necessarily prove this, but I'm convinced that Satan has something to do with these three men being asleep in the most needful hour of prayer they probably could have ever spent. Now, his disciples might have been asleep. The angels weren't. Now, Math, uh, I think Luke, no, yes, Luke tells us that an angel appeared and comforted Jesus during this time. He, he adds that detail to the story. Now, again, in, in my imagination, based on other places in Scripture, I envision all kinds of angels trying to rush to his aid and to comfort and strengthen him. Uh, if you remember over there in Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel's, he's fasted and prayed for 21 days and an angel finally gets through to him. He says, Daniel, you know, God heard you when you started praying and he sent me with an answer, but I've had to fight my whole way here to get it to you. In fact, I had to get the archangel Michael to help me at one point. I mean, that makes that Ephesians 6 stuff seem a little more real, doesn't it? I know we're not privy to all that's happening there, but God gives us little glimpses in the scripture. There's battle taking place. And when you're in that sacred place of prayer, you're entering into that battle. I think these angels were raring to get down there and have their, their place in the fight. But this was a fight that at least predominantly, it would appear the Son of God had to enter into alone. Amen. And Jesus is in anguish. Luke adds the detail that it says he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Hematohydrosis is the medical term. That does happen. It's a, it's a known thing that under certain periods of stress, a person's blood vessels and their sweat glands can merge and your sweat and blood can be mingled together. Luke is, of course, a physician, and he's the only one of the four that mentions this detail. Now, he does say he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, but he does still point that out. Here's Jesus in agony. He's sore amazed. Imagine the perfect son of God who's had nothing but a perfect record of answered prayer for 33 years, and now he's praying, Lord, if it can happen. Lord, if this cup can pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. I think we see some of the the best glimpses of the divinity of Christ in sort of the the symmetry of all the aspects of Jesus as they come together. He's at the same time the boldest and the humblest person that's ever lived. You know, we see people that usually typify one or the other, and it's hard to find someone that's truly this bold, courageous leader, but also a genuinely humble person. And yet you find the best of both come together in Jesus Christ. He's both meek 
and commanding. He speaks with authority. He speaks unambiguously. He speaks powerfully. And yet he's meek. He is both the farthest from sin and the closest to sinners of anyone that's ever lived. And we see those come together in him so beautiful. Why is he sore amazed? Why is he in such agony? Well, the Bible says that his soul is being made an offering for sin. Oh, some of the events of that are going to happen shortly after that, but that's what he's agonizing over right now. Throughout the Bible, there's a number of cups that are mentioned, and one of them, of course, is here in Jesus' prayer when he's asking God, my Father, if, if this cup can pass from me, if I don't have to drink it. Go over to Psalm 75 real quick. Psalm 75. Psalm 75 and verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. God's got a cup of wrath and of judgment. He says the wicked are going to drink it to the dregs, meaning every last drop, even that nasty stuff in the bottom that you never want to drink. He says they're going to drink every drop. In Psalm 116, the psalmist says that he drank of this, the cup of the salvation of the Lord. Now, that's a cup you want to drink from. But the reason that you and I can drink from that cup is because Jesus drank from the cup of the wrath of God. And he drank it to the dregs when his soul was made an offering for sin. The Bible says in Hebrews that he tasted death for every man. And I can drink the cup of salvation because Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment. And lastly, from the garden, I see that the success is already secured here. I've got a book at home called The The World's Hundred Most Decisive Battles. And it lists things like Marathon and Thermopylae and uh, the Battle of Hastings and Midway and all these incredible battles. But if I were writing a book on the world's most decisive battles, number one would be the Garden of Gethsemane. I think this is the world's most decisive battle taking place right here. You've heard the, the old phrase, well begun is half done. It's because oftentimes the battle is in making the decision. Sure, there's more work to be done after that. And sometimes it's a lot of work. It's hard work or it's toil. It's sacrifice. But it's amazing how much different your mindset is, how much different your heart attitude towards a thing is when you know you've already made the right decision. This seems hard, or maybe I have doubts, but you know what? I know the right decision was made. Jesus was making the decision in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, because after that, we know and much of our focus oftentimes, rightly so, is put on his trial and crucifixion. But you know, there's a reason that he never talked back. The Bible says like a lamb to shearers is dumb. He didn't really speak a word. He didn't even fight back. Why? Because he already made a decision of how it was going to play out. The work and agony and prayer to God to ask this cup to pass from him, that was already over. 
He did the work in the garden that allowed him to do what needed to be done on the cross. Joel 3.14 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. What's our decision going to be? You know, it's several times it's interesting that in this account, the Bible says that Jesus went a little farther, went on ahead a little farther. And we each have in our own way, I think, our garden of Gethsemanes that we have to enter into and pray and agonize with God over. But I can tell you this, believer, you'll never enter into the garden of prayer that you won't find that the Lord has already gone a little bit farther. It's already gone a little bit farther than we have. Go over to John 19 and we're done. John 19. <clears throat> John 19. It ends in the same sort of place that it began. It says in John 19 and verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. Right where Jesus was crucified, we find another garden. And Jesus is buried in a garden. And he raises from a garden. The Bible says unless a, a seed of corn falls to the earth and what? And dies, it can't produce any new life. And that's exactly the picture of what Jesus Christ did. He died, and through his death, we have life. And he said, if you'll keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you'll die to yourself and give me your life, you'll have life everlasting. We have a decision to make. Jesus made his decision. Sometimes the decision's a tough one. Maybe you're trying to make a decision about whether or not to come to Christ. Or maybe you're here and you know you're saved, but you've got things that God would have you make decisions on and move forward. Sometimes the decision might have to be made alone. Jesus took three of his closest companions, but he ended up agonizing in prayer all alone. You might be alone in the decision. Your friends might forsake you. Sometimes people don't make decisions because they're afraid what their family is going to think. That's tough. That's not a light matter, but we still need to make the right decision before God. Sometimes our decisions may affect other people, and that can be a burden. You know, it's interesting that uh, in Matthew, I I think chapter 27, the Bible says that that there's Simon, a man of Cyrene, and him, they they just grabbed this guy out of the crowd, and it says they compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. That was a shameful probably painful event that he endured. He, did, he was just in the crowd that day. But a decision that Jesus made cost him something. And sometimes decisions we make may cost others, and that weighs on us. But we have to weigh those things out in prayer before God. This hasn't been a, a rah, rah, amen type of a message, but I hope it's a, a thoughtful message that we can all take to heart and God will use uh, for his honor and glory as we press ahead in the days to come. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for this precious book. Lord, sometimes well-worn stories uh, have a way of uh, fading in potency in our minds, and there's really no small stories in the Bible in that sense. Lord, thank you for this story about how you agonize in a decision Lord, a decision that affects every one of us here. 
Lord, that our salvation hinged upon. And I pray that you'd help us to take some things to heart tonight. I pray, Lord, that we would walk humbly with you. Uh, Lord, that we'd seek your face, desire to grow closer to you, and Lord, to be a blessing to one another and a witness to this lost world. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. Thank you for our time together tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.